seated. We are studying the gospel according to John. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we come to the last chapter in the book, which I feel a certain sadness about. It's uh, been such a delightful uh, place to have our meditation week after week. We left it off for a while and we picked it up again this, this spring, this year, but uh, all good things must come to an end. We do not finish now. I'm, I'm going to be here for the next couple of weeks, but we do come to the last chapter, to John chapter 29, and uh, reading from verse 1 down to verse 14, as Jesus showed himself or revealed himself. You notice the inclusio up to verse 14 in this final miracle. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee. And in this way he showed himself Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. When the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They, then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outward garment, for he'd removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught, just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. <laughs> None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it, it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, near or far, we are confident in that uh, great power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, being lifted up, now draws all men to himself. May he continue to draw our hearts upward. May he continue to uh, teach us his way. May the lessons of such miracles not be lost on poor and weak servants such as we are. We pray that we, too, would be granted the joy of being part of the master's great harvest and um, be partakers of his joy in it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, it's frankly a discouraging time for Christians here in the West. In a study that was published just yesterday, I read that three-quarters of Britons said that they believed in God in 1981, compared to just under half, 49%, by last year, 2022. Uh, Another Guardian newspaper article depressingly pointed out that no major British church is bringing in fresh blood, they say, through conversions. There's a kind of denominational musical chairs, said one researcher, but no one is making serious inroads into the non-Christian population. That's depressing. And the same thing, of course, could be said from Scandinavia to San Francisco, from Austria to Australia. Here in the United States, we are in somewhat better shape compared to the rest of the Western world, but nevertheless, somewhere between 23 and 28 percent of American adults now report no religious affiliation. They are the so-called nuns, and that's a hard habit to break. No pun intended. No pun intended on that one. I guess uh, the the nuns are are in large part, the researchers tell us, coming out of the self-styled liberal churches, which are in total freefall, so perhaps it's not the end of the world. But those former members, the so-called nuns, they are not only increasing in number, they are also becoming much more consistent with their belief that there is no God. Well, of course, I I, I say this is discouraging. It's not just a problem of demographics and statistics. It's it's those whom we know and love and see every day and and work with. And, And we say, oh, Lord, what can we do? It is discouraging and overwhelming for us. But if it is so discouraging for us, I assure you, it was nothing like the discouragement that those disciples must have felt, uh, those few fishermen who were the chosen ambassadors of the Messiah to the great pagan world, armed with only the message of a crucified Messiah and with so much uh, power and unbelief against them, what hope would they have? And who is sufficient for these things? Well, Jesus had promised them that he would make them fishers of men if they followed him. And not just fishers, catchers of men. From now on, you shall catch men, he specified. And that was a great promise. And that encourages us because we are never given any reason to believe that that those fishermen were in any way uh, more gifted, more virtuous, better qualified, even more faithful for that work than others. I suspect that not one of those men was elected most likely to succeed in his senior year of high school. They were, in fact, completely, utterly unequal to the task. But Jesus had come to seek and to save that which was lost, and Jesus continued, intended to continue doing that through these disciples and through his disciples today. And so it continues, of course. uh, Preachers certainly have their role in a major survey of how Americans came to believe the good news of Jesus. 84.5% of them came to faith through the testimony of a friend or loved one. 
Those disciples had a special calling, and they followed Jesus in a special way, it's true. But what he says, he says to all his disciples, follow me. And although every Christian is not an apostle, every Christian is a follower of Christ. And how then does he expect us or them to bring his good news to an unbelieving world? Well, he has one more important lesson to give them by way of a miracle here in John chapter 21. Some people have wondered, uh, why is this chapter here? You would have expected him to finish the book at the end of chapter 20. Jesus has risen from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and they have believed. My Lord and my God, said even doubting Thomas at the end. And then that chapter concluded by saying that Jesus had done many other signs, but that these are written that you may believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now that's how you end a book. What a great ending. Uh, but we're not done. So uh, what is this chapter here for? You ever, uh, you ever read Robinson Crusoe and you think that, uh, you know, Defoe just, just, just doesn't know how to end, right? He just keeps on going and, and going and, and, and going and doesn't know when to stop. Well, uh, is that John's issue? Uh, w- what could possibly follow the climax of having in Christ eternal life? Answer, one more thing about bringing that life to others. Others. For Jesus had promised that even though he was departing, he was going away. Nevertheless, he would still be with his disciples always and empower them for their work in the world. And this is exactly what we need to believe and what we struggle to believe that he is with us, that he is empowering us. So chapter 21 gives us this important lesson. It begins with a fruitless fishing expedition. Several of the disciples go fishing. Jesus said, I'll meet you in Galilee. Still have to eat. So they fish. They work hard all night. And they return in the morning with nothing to show for it. A man calls from 200 yards out or so. man calls from the shore and says, did you catch anything? No, they say. He tells them where to cast their nets and find some. They cast, they can't draw the nets in because of the weight of fish. You know, Jesus was truly a prophet, mighty in both word and deed, as he taught his disciples by both means. Those miracles, especially in the Gospel of John, were much more than given to authenticate him and his mission. They were illustrations. They were the pictures in his book. And what does this picture illustrate? I'm going to consider three things with you today. The Lord uses means. Second, means are not sufficient. And third, Christ is the one who gives success. Not a very hard lesson to grasp, I think, but one is hard to put into practice. First, the Lord uses means. The Lord uses means. When Jesus first called them, he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And that's a very fruitful comparison, isn't it? Um, Professional fishermen know uh, a, a fisherman's work is toilsome. A fisherman has to go out in rough weather. If he only fished on a calm sea, he'd starve. 
He has to face the spray of the wave. He has to ride out the storm. He has to have courage. He has to give up comfort. A fisherman has to persevere. You know, sometimes, as we see here, a fisherman goes out, and for all his labor, he has no fish to show for it. And that's a problem especially if you've overfished an area. So a fisherman's also got to keep moving. He's got to keep casting his net in all kinds of waters. A fisherman can't simply put up a sign on his boat, fish are welcome here. He's got to cast and cast and cast again. And that means that a fisherman has to have some thick skin, has to know how to handle disappointment. He knows that most of his casts are going to pull up nothing but weeds. But he's not put off because he knows there's fish hiding in those weeds. And he knows by experience that persevering, varying his bait and approach, and practicing his art will have a reward. All of this and much more applies to fishing for men. Jesus illustrated that to his disciples in countless ways. How to do, as Thomas Boston called it, man fishing, right? In the Gospel of John, he's given us conversations to overhear, a midnight visit by Nicodemus, a noonday chat with a Samaritan woman at a well, many, many more to show them how the master catches fish. Now, I understand that here in the South, some hardy men, maybe some among you, can even catch fish with bare hands. Anybody uh, do that here? Yeah? Oh, oh man, I see, a, I see a nod. Anybody know what that's called? Noodling. Somebody's got it. Man, it's pretty impressive. Just go by some other names, by the way, but uh, often in the South it's called noodling. Uh, yeah, you can just push your hand down and pull out a catfish from the hole sometimes. That's pretty... That's pretty impressive. Anybody want to show me that? I'm game. I'll bring my kids to see that. That's pretty (laughs) impressive. But the usual way of catching fish, of course, is with good equipment. You use means. You know, the Lord likes to use means as well. And he, he likes to invest in those means. He invests in his disciples, and he enjoys making them successful and joyful in the work. He doesn't get any less glory by doing things with and through his disciples. In fact, the the Bible says we, we have such a treasure in earthen vessels. Remember why? That God may have less glory and that we may have more? Oh, no. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay pots, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. That is to say, the The weakness of the creature can serve to show the greatness of the creator, right? It's a poor fisherman that blames his equipment, right? When when you can land a fish with very poor equipment and your buddy that you're fishing with with his nice $1,000 rod can't pull anything up, right? It says something about the hands of the fisherman. Mm -hmm. Well, he uses the weakness of the creature to show the power of the creator. And you remember how Samson personally overcame a thousand Philistines to deliver Israel at one time. Now, that would have been an absolutely astonishing feat with a sword or a bow. But you remember he selected a weapon that was completely unadapted to the work. He, he, he took the fresh jawbone of a donkey, 
and he laid a thousand Philistines in heaps upon heaps, as it's written. The Lord also is pleased to do great works with weak means that he might have the glory. So even here, now when the Lord does such a remarkable miracle, you notice that nevertheless, those men are very fully involved. The fish don't leap into Peter's boat. They don't jump out of the sea and lay themselves down upon the charcoal fire. That would have been nice. But every bit of it is still done with human agency. It is a great miracle, but neither the fisherman nor his boat nor his net are ignored. They're, they're all part of his plan. And this heads off a potential objection, by the way. Someone may say, you know, we're not called to be successful. We're just called to be faithful. We're not called to be successful, just faithful. Uh, my brother-in-law, Nathan, gave a great sermon to his presbytery some years ago on this. He said, that's a truth that conceals a lie. <laughs> it's true that the results are completely up to him and that we are called to be faithful. That's true. But that conceals a subtle lie, implying that it shouldn't matter to us what the results are, so long as we are faithful. I, I suppose that's given to help our feelings. It does matter to a fisherman. He's out for fish. Oh, there are dry days. And he grieves them nonetheless. And to many of those in a row, and he asks other fishermen what they're doing, how they're doing. He tries new spots, new techniques, new bait, new lures. Got that paycheck for a reason, right? All to practice his art. And he grieves if too long unsuccessful. Now, of course, we can't make ourselves successful in giving other people everlasting life and joy in Christ any more than a fisherman can make himself successful on any fishing expedition. It does not work that way. That will be point two. But we shouldn't pretend that it doesn't matter to see so many friends, family members, loved ones, our fellow human beings who care nothing for their creator and such a great redeemer of the world whom we so love. It does drive us on. Faithful or not. Now, I, I do need to balance this teaching and say that, you know, sometimes the Lord does his work in the most unexpected way with the most humble means. Um, up in uh, New Jersey, the OPC has a boardwalk chapel and had that for years. A little place and people go out uh, from time to time on the beach also and just walk around and tell people about the, about the Lord. I, I heard a man who had gone out with a, a friend of his, and uh, it, it was his friend's uh, first time. That his friend was just very visibly nervous, right, to the, to the point of stuttering and shaking. And when they went and talked to the first person, it, it, it was in a stammering way. It was somewhat coherent and <laughs> somewhat awkward. And uh, this, this, this man is trying to stand there with his uh, smile on his face and to you know, shake, shake his head. And he's thinking, oh, oh my, poor, my, poor, my poor friend. And this poor guy has got to listen to him, right? 
and 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 he he just cut it off. At, his friend just cut it off at some point and said, "So, so what do you think?" And 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 the man on the beach said, "You know that's right." <laughs> and he said, "What?" He, he he didn't actually say it. He he said it to himself. What? You heard that? And 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 you're saying it's right, and that's what you need. The Lord uses means. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's the fresh jawbone of a donkey, if available. But you know, he knows how to get glory in such a way. Usually the instruments in the Lord's hands that he chooses to use are those that he himself has trained and fitted to the task well. Sometimes a mighty Samson will grab the jawbone of a donkey. But in either case, the work is his. Nevertheless, the Lord uses means. All right, the Lord uses means. Means, point two, are not sufficient in themselves. Means are not sufficient in themselves. And Jesus wants to point that out in this case to these expert professional fishermen who come from a fishing family, a line of fishermen who made their living on that Sea of Galilee. He asks them in verse 5, after a busy night, children, do you have any food? They answer him, no, a sorrowful no. Well, why didn't they have any fish? Were they not fishermen? They were professionals. Had they gone out thoughtlessly? No, they understood the work perfectly. Had they lacked industry? No, they, they certainly not. They were not lazy or careless. They said that they had toiled. Did they lack perseverance? They toiled all night. Was there some lack of fish in the sea? <laughs> no. As soon as the master comes, they can scarcely contain the catch. What then is the reason that they went all night toiling with not a fish to show for it? It was part of an important lesson, you see. It's the picture book. When Jesus says, do you have any food, children? He wasn't asking for information. He already had a fire cooking some fish on the beach. He knew that they hadn't caught a thing. He wanted to elicit a recognition of that fact from them. He wanted to acknowledge their total insufficiency on them for themselves. He was illustrating what he had told them just a few days earlier. Without me, you can do nothing. For means are not sufficient in themselves. The Lord is pleased to use means. He spends a great deal of time and energy and effort preparing these men to teach now, just as the Lord wants it done, to teach them, to teach them to teach us just how the Lord does it, how he wants us to do it. Okay, that's all important, the means. But there is no power in those means apart from the presence of Christ. The great fisherman who uses means takes weakness into his hands and makes it strong. He would have us know, nevertheless, that the weakness that we have, that we feel, is totally subservient to his might. The weakness you feel in this matter is totally subservient to his might. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, we can and should learn from reading, from training, 
from talking with others, from organizing, from practicing. These things must be done. That's how Jesus did it. But just as a fishing rod doesn't accomplish anything without being in the hand of a fisherman, so are we without the presence and power of Christ. You know, Paul reflected on this work, his work as a missionary, when he wrote to the Corinthians, uh, who is sufficient for these things? And he answers that rhetorical question a few verses later, not that we are sufficient of ourselves or to think of anything being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul uh, himself, he is with his friend Barnabas, and they went and, and, and spoke of Christ in the city of Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13. And he said when they spoke, quote, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. They spoke, the people were glad, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And then just five verses later, we read in Iconium, they went together to the synagogue and they so spoke, NIV, they spoke so effectively that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. So, whoa, hold on a second, which is it? Is it that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, or is it they spoke so effectively? They so spoke that a great number believed. Well, you see, the Bible's perspective does not let us choose. The Lord uses means. He has chosen and, and blessed his prepared means, and he teaches us truth and wisdom and insight and persuasion and understanding. We learn the master's way, and these things he also chooses to bless to great effect in the world so that his determined purposes and his counsel might stand and that he, not we, might be the savior of the world. You are not the savior of the world. He doesn't need you. Sometimes they, people say, oh, he has no hands but our hands. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. He isn't served with men's hands as though he needed anything. Anything. Acts 17.25. He called Paul by himself. He's invited us to share his joy. He's invited us to share that joy with others. And what a wonderful joy it is. But means? Means are not sufficient in themselves. Our third and final point, Christ is the one who gives success. Christ is the one who gives success. He says to him in verse 6, Now cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Oh, the right side. We've been using the left side all night. So they cast, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And then at that very moment, they knew, it is the Lord. You say, how do they know? Well, because this had happened once before. This happened at the beginning when, they, when Jesus was first calling those, some of those very disciples. Uh, but at that time, Christ was in the boat with them. 
Now he's at a considerable distance. And this is the real purpose now of this miracle. Because if the Lord is not with them physically, what, what, what hope do they have? Although at a distance so far, far enough anyway that he wasn't perceived by them, it was nevertheless his mysterious influence that there across the water drew a great catch of fish into their nets. And this is the great reason for this lesson, for Jesus is about to ascend to his father. He's about to go at a great distance from them and begin his reign with all authority in heaven and earth, being made head over all things for the church. He's, he's not going to be there in the boat with them fishing. He's not going to be with his disciples anymore in the same way fishing for men. They are going to be sent out into all the world to make disciples of all nations with his promise that he will be with them always, even to the end of the age. And he said to them earlier, you know, I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And that mysterious drawing power is now illustrated in this miracle to teach them what we too must learn, that it is still Christ's mysterious presence in the church that is the source of the church's power. Not with us as he was then, but still with us. And when he is present, there is power. I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. There is attraction. Charles Spurgeon comments, Christians, Christ's presence with you must be your power. Be much in fellowship with him. Catch much of his spirit. Meditate much upon his sufferings. Keep close to his person. Oh, that we had more of Christ's presence in us as a church. Lift up your hearts for it. Then man shall sink lower and lower, and it shall be more fully perceived that it is the Lord. A small number of converts, such as have been common in our churches for years, where twos and threes are added, are quite consistent, he writes, with self-congratulation. And so is utter barrenness. You just see the pride of many a fruitless preacher, he says. You'll see that it's so. But let the Lord make bare his arm, and the man will humble himself in the dust. For when hundreds are ingathered, it, it cannot be the minister. This is the finger of God. Oh, that God would do great things for us. It's been this way countless times in, in seasons of revival. I remember reading before the Great Awakening some eminent preachers saying that, it, that they, they thought that the work of conversion had come to a standstill. And then in, in, one, in one day, 75 people, 100 people, How does it work? Spurgeon continues, We speak to all, and he speaks to some. We blow the trumpet, but only the bankrupt debtors hear it. Only those who are truly born of the Spirit of God know the joyful sound and rejoice in it. We can't single them out, but God can. We thrust in the blessed magnet of the gospel, and that heavenly magnet has an attraction 
to some hearts which God has made alive, so that as many as are ordained to eternal life believed, he writes. The apostles soon preached to the crowd, but the Lord God, who had decreed the salvation of his chosen, sent that word home with power to his chosen and separated ones, 3,000 in a single day. Some of them were the ones who called for the Lord's death. That is the power of God. It is the Lord. It's all of the Lord. But sometimes he likes to make his arm bare. And John, John for his part, he seems surprised that the uh, nets didn't break with such a catch. But this is all part of the lesson because not one of those elect fish are going to be lost. A great catch. None lost. He actually numbered them, 153 numbered among the elect. They were all, all, he says, large fish. In other words, there's not a, not a throwback among them all. Wow. That is the power of Christ. And there will be, very soon be a great number in heaven that no man can number. For God's elect are not few, and the Lord knows those that are his. And Christ is not here, he's risen, been made head over all things, I say, but whether here or there, by his presence, our labor will have a rich reward. That's his promise, that's the lesson. Spurgeon presses home, Mother, will you learn it? You have been toiling long for your children. It has been night with you as yet. They give no evidence of grace, Rather, they give many signs of sin, and they grieve your spirit. Your night's toiling shall have an end. You shall at last cast the net on the right side of the ship. Sunday school teacher, you have been diligently laboring long. And with but little fruit, be not discouraged. The master will not let you work in vain. In due season, you shall reap if you faint not. You shall doubtless come again Rejoicing, bringing your sheaves with you, and you, church of God, travailing for souls, meeting daily in prayer, pleading with men that they will come to Christ. What if they are not saved yet? The morning cometh, he writes. The morning cometh. All right. Uh, Jesus was at, uh, uh, Jesus was pleased to withhold some blessing for a while, that it might be seen that the work was his. Yes, it was night and nothing without the Lord. But with the Lord came the catch. They used what they had with a practiced hand, and the Lord blessed in his time. And what a blessing. And so you don't let a sense of inadequacy, inadequacy immobilize you. And, uh, and there, when they get there, you know, he's already got a couple fish on the fire. And I, I wondered about that. Okay, so if they're, if they're getting fish, why does he already have some fish on the fire? Um, and, you know, he says bring some and we'll cook some more, but, but you know how the, the sight of fish on the fire give you an appetite? Well, maybe not all of you. You know how the sight of good food, the smell of the grill maybe, gives you an appetite? Do any of you have an appetite now for fish? Has he given you an appetite for fish? I know you and I have cast nets many times in vain. And I know that you and I are discouraged by so much disinterest 
if not actually grumpiness rather than joy. How easy it is for us to be discouraged in our day when it seems that the kingdom of God is making very little progress, certainly here in the West, to say the least. So we do feel what these disciples felt, weariness, after a whole night of laboring without success. We know what they feel. And all this time, the Lord knew just where they were and just where the fish were. And in a moment, everything is different, for when he comes, the change is is astonishing. It is a miracle of grace. And so it has been countless times in what we call revival, how God's great works are commonly preceded by a protracted period of deadness and coldness. It's called the Great Awakening for a reason, because our country was not in good shape. The gospel was, was not going forward. So that when God revived his work in the world, all would know it is the Lord. And in conclusion, I think that this guards us from two dangers. First, there's a danger when we are discouraged, feeling our own inadequacy, feeling the salt in the wounds of hands that have labored and been cut on the rope a few times without any reward. The danger is that Eventually, we become so discouraged that we become paralyzed and do nothing. You know, Moses felt that danger also when the Lord called him to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he's 80 years old. And who me? You know, I'm, I'm slow of speech, and he has an abundance of of reasons for discouragement. And the Lord says, "Yes, you." And here the Lord has them cast their nets, as he told them, despite their discouragement, and use the strength that they have left by morning so that we might continue to persevere and use the strength that God has given us to serve him and not to let our sense of fruitlessness and inadequacy immobilize us. You've got to trust him and open your mouth with the strength he's given. The second danger, the other side of the danger, is that now with some training, You can fall into the trap of thinking that your training or experience makes you adequate in yourself. Maybe your success even makes you feel self-reliant. Peter and the other disciples could have thought, hey, we're professionals. We don't need anyone to tell us where to cast our nets. The left side, the right side, we know our business. We know what we're doing. But with such an attitude, they would have completely missed the Lord's power. Of course, it's helpful to have training. I said that earlier, techniques and methods are employed by fishermen of all sorts, but they are never adequate substitutes for trusting in the Lord. So get all the training and expertise and talk to others and do whatever the Lord has called you to do where he's put you, but never trust in such things. Rely on him through faith and prayer. A midnight visit, a, a noontime conversation at a well, things that don't seem to be planned by us, but the Lord knows. A few years ago, the Washington Monument was closed for renovations, you might remember. It was during those renovations that they uncovered some graffiti from the 1800s when it was still being built. Not the kind of graffiti you usually see today on railroad cars, right? Someone who was involved in building that great monument. You know, it was the tallest 
structure in the world when it was completed. Someone wrote in the, near the base, whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. That is to say, something more to be remembered than Here is the joy and honor that the king lavishes upon the nobodies of the world. Most of us are naturally shy, introverted. I am timid, moody. Maybe we know our Bibles well. We have a good understanding of the gospel. We long to see others coming to faith, to share our joy in God. Maybe we're intimidated. Um, uh, every year for the last three years, I've set before you those questions from the survey and put it again in your bulletin. That survey of 20,000 American unchurched adults who were asked, do you agree that your Christian friends talk about their faith too much? Only 22% agree with that. 73% disagree. Do you agree that if a friend of yours really values their faith, you don't you don't mind them talking about it? Oh, 79% say, no, I, I agree. 18% disagree. It's easy to feel that 18%. When someone wants to talk to you about their religious beliefs, how do you respond? 47%, I discuss it freely. 31%, I listen without actively participating. 12%, discuss it with some discomfort. 11% change the subject as soon as possible. You say, you know, I've, I've, I've seen all these statistics. You, you gave them to us last year. You, you gave them to us the year before. I know. How likely? Th th these are people that have not been to church in the last, I think it was, six years. They asked them, how likely are you to attend church regularly sometime in the future? A full third of them said, that's, that's likely. <laughs> Two-thirds of them, un unlikely. Yeah, what do they know? That's what I thought. In any case, the Spirit of God is not hindered by statistics. statistics. No offense to this statistician here in our audience here. Uh, he's not hindered by the prejudices of the human heart or the, antici the anticipated direction of society. He will have a great harvest from the earth that no man can number. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And, and we know that the news is simply too good to keep to ourselves. He says, will you not share my joy? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, fill us with joy. Fill us with that spirit but that by his power, our words about Christ to others may be made powerful and effective. We pray that you would grant the blessing, the blessing of the earth turning to the Lord and be filled with your glory and joy as the waters cover the sea, as the prophets said earlier. Oh, how we long to see it. We know that it will be. How joyful it is when we see the sun dawning in the east, right? The many peoples of the south who sat in darkness 
seeing a great light. How wonderful when those whom we love and whom we have prayed for somehow see things that they could never have seen before. That right when our strength seemed to have failed, the Lord arrived and all was well. How we are still burdened for those who, who we love, who don't love you. Oh Lord, teach us your way. As we follow Jesus, we pray that you would make us too fishers of men. We ask it for his sake.